we're looking together in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 9 we begin tonight. Three verses together. Nehemiah chapter 9, the Bible says in verse number 1, Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Tonight I'm preaching on the lost art of confession. A Scottish proverb says that confession is good for the soul. Um, That's not in the Bible. But I, I think sort of what was meant by that is that confession makes you feel better. And I think we've sort of twisted that a little bit because, you know, a lot of people go to psychiatrists and other things to to feel better as they talk about their problems. And I'm not against feeling better, but the thing that will make us feel better more than anything in the world is getting clean with God. And the purpose of confession is not just to feel better. It's to get clean with God, and when I get clean with God, I do feel better. The Catholics, of course, have twisted that idea of confession. And I remember when I was in public school, many of my friends there in the high school, they would they would have their Christmas time. They'd say, oh, we're going with Mom and Dad. We're going for our Christmas thing. And they'd go every year, and they would make their confession, and they would confess their sins. And, of course, that priestly confession really... <laughs> Was was and is still today a joke. Of course, that priest can't can't forgive their sin. That's that's not what God told us to do. But but people would sin all year long, and they'd feel better about telling a priest what they had done, having no no desire to change their life, no intention of doing that, but just telling you about it, confessing it to you makes me feel better, and then. But I'll go back next month and start doing the same thing. So th- that's not the purpose of confession is just to feel better. It's to get right with God. Amen. And then that does bring a, a sense of relief to the soul and, and our conscience is made better in that regard. And here in our text, we, we have something very interesting because look at verse 1 with me again. He says, now on the 20 and 4th day of this month. Now, we know what's been happening in this month, this 7th month. We've been preaching that for... For many weeks in chapter 8, they, they've been enjoying the Feast of Tabernacles and they've been enjoying revival. And that went from the 15th day of the month, the Feast of Tabernacles does, until the 21st day. It's a seven-day feast. And we talk about how they had mirth and gladness and they're eating and fellowshipping and enjoying. And I mean, they're just, they're just having great, a great time with God and with one another. And they're in those booths out there meeting God and all that. We talked about all that. But now on the 24th day 
That's three days later. Three days later, after they hung from the chandeliers and shouted glory and ate the fatted calf and rejoiced, the Bible says the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. Do you see a great balance there? Or as my friend said, maybe some um, bipolar issues there. Hey, I mean, how, how do you go from being so happy to all of a sudden you got earth on your head, you're fasting, you're in sackcloth? Does that not sound a little... But you know what that is? That's a picture of how our Christian life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be filled constantly with joy and yet seriousness over our sin. And what we, we have today in society, we have, we have a society that, that, doesn't, that wants one or the other. They either want, you know, a, a, a downtrodden, depressed life, you know, thinking that's a spiritual thing with no joy. Or they want all joy and they don't want any seriousness. And the man of sorrows that was acquainted with grief was also one that rejoiced and had joy set before him. It's something we have to have both in our lives. How how can we have such gladness and then have tears? That's the Christian life. And if you don't have both of those, there's something missing in you. If you have a lack of joy, there's something missing in your life. There's something not right. But if you have all joy and you never have any tears and you never have any seriousness with God and you never have any confession in your life and your heart's never broken as well, then there's something seriously wrong with your Christian life. And and we should have both. So this revival continues three days after they finished this feast. On the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled. Watch these three things. With fasting... And with sackcloth and earth upon them. Well, I'd say, first of all, the fasting. They was probably ready for that after they'd eaten so much. Right? You've got to have a balance. You can't just have feasting without fasting. And that lends me to say, I, I, I hope, I ask our church family to join with me to do some fasting for our family camp. And you say, why? Because we are going to do some feasting as well, but there ought to be some fasting done. And it's probably been, been long enough since we've fasted. We, we have had fasts in our church that we have done, and we've put a sign-up sheet and even asked you to fast for our country or, or, or whatnot or some, some issue that was going on. But I think it's time for us to fast. I'm not going to make you sign anything. But the but, but reason we do that, many times something is said and we ask people to fast and it goes through your mind, okay, I'll do that, and then we just forget about it. And I don't want you to forget about it. I, I think fasting th- three days between now and family camp would be a, a good goal. Now, if you can't fast all day, you can fast that many meals. If you eat two meals a day, that's that's... Six meals to fast. Now you say, why do, I, why do we do that? Because it, it's in the Bible. And because we need to put our flesh down in order for the Spirit of God to get control. 
And I think we'll feast better if we'll fast. I do. Jesus said, when ye fast. Not if ye fast, but when ye fast. That means he assumes and he takes it for granted that you're going to do that. When ye fast. You say, well, that's a Jewish thing. No, it's not. They, they came to Jesus and they said, our, our disciples fast and other people fast, other disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast. And Jesus said this, as long as the bridegroom's with them, they're not going to fast because I'm with them. But when I go away, then shall they fast. Guess what? He's gone away. Are we his disciples? Then fasting ought to be a part of our life. It just shows our seriousness with God. It doesn't make you necessarily a more spiritual person because they're Muslims fast. You know, Ramadan is the biggest joke that ever was, but it's very serious. They fast all day long, and then when the sun goes down, they're animals, literally, with their food. But they'll fast all day long during Ramadan, every day of Ramadan. And we ought to have some type of commitment that, like that in our lives. And so I, I ask you to fast some. I think it's a scriptural thing for you to do. I think it's a, it's a healthy thing for us to do. But setting that aside, it's a scriptural thing to do. To, to tell yourself no. And it's not easy. It's difficult. Nobody wants to do that. Americans don't do that very much. And we as Christians, as independent Baptists, you don't do that that much. Now, I know a few people that fast on a regular basis in our church, but it's very few. I don't do that that much, but I need to do that. We all need to do that. So let's set aside some time to fast. Is that good? No sign-up sheet, no raise your hand, no embarrassing just will somebody join me in fasting and praying for family camp? That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the ask. That's what they're doing here. They're not only fasting, though. Watch it. He says, they assembled uh, with fasting and with sackcloths. I call this verse, this is all, though we're talking about confession here in a moment, this is the lost art of humility. They're humbling themselves and denying themselves food, but they're also humbling themselves. They're leaving off their pretty, sparkly, nice, impressive clothes, and they put on sackcloth. They put on sackcloth. This is a form of humility. You know what sackcloths are? It's wearing a sack for your clothes. That profound? <laughs> he said, who would ever wear a sack for their clothing? I don't know. Is there anybody here old enough to know? I don't guess anybody is old enough to remember the Depression days. I don't see anybody that's that old. You've got to be really old to remember the Depression. But during the 30s, 1930s, you know what they did? They took sacks. Because they, they didn't have any material. They, they, their clothes wore out. It was a depression. They didn't have any money. And some of those poor pictures of poor Americans in the 30s in the Great Depression looks like any third world country you'd see anywhere around the world today. And what they would do, they would get their flour in a sack. And after they used up that flour, they would somehow, I don't know how they did it, but they would make clothes out of those flour sacks. Or maybe it was a potato sack. 
Or maybe it was a, a burlap bag. <laughs> How would you like to come to church in a burlap bag? That wouldn't be very impressive, would it? Or a flour sack. They used to make jokes about it. You know, the, the flour companies or the potato companies, they, were, they would say people would walk around and they'd have advertisements because the stuff that had been printed on their sacks, people were wearing that. It's hard to believe that there was a time in America where people had to wear sacks for clothes. It showed how poor you were. It showed, showed how, how you didn't have anything. But these people didn't wear sack clothes because somebody was dead. Now, that's the first instance somebody ever put on sackcloth. That's Jacob. When, he, when the Joseph's brothers came back to Jacob and said, uh, Joseph is dead, you know, and brought his uh, coat of many colors blood. And, and the Bible said that, that Jacob put on sack clothes. It was a form of mourning, you see. But nobody's de- dying here. Nobody's dead. They have clothes. But they're setting aside everything that makes them look good. And even if it's wearing a toe sack, they're humbling themselves. You know, guys, I think we're more concerned about looking good than we are being right with God. And these people got so impressed that they need to humble themselves they put off all of their nice clothes. You said, preacher, are you telling us to do that? No, a good dose of humility, being clothed with humility would be enough. You can be clothed with humility without wearing a sack. But maybe we need to step aside from worrying about looking so good to worrying about am I right with God. Because we spend a lot of time on our, on our hair and our clothes and our figure and make sure everything looks right. And I think it ought to look right. But many times we spend a whole lot more time on that than what we do trying to get right with God. Some people spend more time brushing their teeth than they do praying. Think about that. They put on sack clothes because they knew they needed God. Now notice, they're they're coming out of a revival meeting, but you know what they're saying? We need more of God. That's not enough. There's still some things in my life I need help from the Lord. I don't want the revival to end. I don't want the work of God to end. We've had a great month. Three days later, let's assemble again. They assemble with fasting and with sackcloths. Look at the last thing. And earth upon them. Now that's an extreme form of humility. You'll find that in both Old and in New Testament. Somebody putting earth on their head. That's a, that's a thing in, in the Bible days that they did along with those sackcloths. But when you put earth upon yourself, you put dirt on yourself. Are you with earth, dirt? They put dirt on themselves. Boy, these people are crazy. No, they're about to get right with God. They're about to get help from God. Why? They're humbling themselves. I'm not, I'm not telling us to walk around with dirt on us, but I tell you what, I'd rather you do that and get right with God and not do that and not be right with God. They put earth upon themselves. You know, you see sort of an illustration of that, though it's twisted. 
with the Catholics. How many of how many of you have seen um, during uh, Resurrection Week? You'll see the Catholics on TV, and they'll have black stuff on their head. You seen that? They do that for Ash Wednesday. Is what the Catholics call that. And and it's just acknowledging the death of Christ, and they're supposed to be their own repentance and human. But I tell you what, it's a lot easier to do that than get your heart right with God. But. But still, I'm amazed at how Catholics are not, are not ashamed to do that. Who would get on national television with, with black stuff on your head? They do. It's an act of humility. And my question is, are we willing to humble ourselves at all? To the point of putting dirt on yourself. You know why? You know why maybe they put dirt on their shelf? They knew there was dirty things in their lives. They might as well just acknowledge it. Maybe put some dirt on my head because my, my thoughts are dirty. Maybe put some dirt around my lips because my lips are dirty. I speak dirty things. Maybe put some dirt right around my heart here out on the outside because my heart's dirty. Oh, we wouldn't want to walk around if somebody walked in church, you know, and their face was all dirty and their hands were all dirty. You know, you would think, oh, what's wrong with those people? They couldn't, don't they have the decency to get clean before they come to church? You know, they got on Jesus for that. Jesus sat down to eat and he didn't wash his hands. Man, Jesus is eating with dirty hands. You know what? He did that on purpose. I said he did that on purpose. He said, you're looking at my dirty hands and I didn't wash my hands. And the reason I didn't, because I'm trying to show you, you don't, you're, you don't mind eating and sitting down the table with the Son of God with a dirty heart. And you're more concerned about the dirt on, on my hands than the dirt that's in your life. So they're getting serious with God. They're humbling themselves. Humbling themselves. What a good path to revival. Alan Redpath said this. I I wrote it down, put it in my notes. Listen. He said, if you avoid in your present Christian life a daily humiliation before God, you will soon become hard-hearted, cold, and indifferent to the things of God. Maybe the reason that church is so dead and cold for some people, maybe the reason people's hearts are so hard-hearted and not warmed with the love of God, and they're indifferent to the things of God and not even concerned about Him, not even past their thoughts, is because we have neglected, as He said, our humiliation before God. And we're not asking people to humble themselves before others. Humiliating ourselves before God. We're not saying put on sack clothes or put dirt on your head. But we're saying there needs to be a humbling and acknowledgement before God that I'm nothing. And if I don't do that, Redpath says on a daily basis, that's why I'm cold. That's why I'm indifferent. That's why I have a hard heart. Because I've not done the humiliation of these people of God. So that's verse 1. Look at verse 2. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers. 
The first thing they did is they humbled themselves. The second thing they did is they separated themselves. That's another lost art. (laughs) They said, we need to get away from all these strangers. They're keeping us from having a good relationship with God. You know what I'm going to say to you this morning? For some people in here, if you don't get away from some people, you're never going to have a life with God. They said, we've got to separate from these strangers, these strange lifestyles, these strange points of view. Independent Baptists used to be pretty good at that. Matter of fact, we were so good at that, we bragged about that. We were so good about that that nobody else did that, that that's all we preached about. We were so good at that, that that we came to the past in some people's life that they thought that was the sum of Christianity. But I want to say this to you. Though separation is not the sum of Christianity. Though separation is nothing to brag about. If we're going to be right with God, there still has to be separation in our lives. There's not going to be the revival with God with all these strangers and strange things in my life. Separation is not just Old Testament principle, it's a New Testament doctrine. Jesus is not just going to separate the sheep from the goats, but the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, He said, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord. You know what's good about family camp? We all get together, but you know what else we do? We get away from people. Amen. I don't know how many people come to me and say, Preacher, boy, I tell you what, my work, I'm around these people, and they do this, and they say this. We know what's good about just getting away from people. Amen. But we just talk about Jesus, and we sing about Jesus, and we have good conversation. Amen. But I'm afraid what some people do in their lives as Christians, they bring the things of the strangers of the world, and they bring them into their heart and their life. There can be no working of God in your life if there's not some separation in your life. Jesus was separate from sinners, the Bible said. He ate with them. He loved them, but he was separate from them. They had no doubt that he was different than they were. And so there needs to be a difference in our lives. And the reason that that phrase is important is because we're getting to confession And really, I want you to see, look at verse 2 again. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. But you see, their confession's not hollow because they want to be right with God to the point of doing something about it. It wasn't just saying some words to God. No, they are trying to remove the things of the strangers from their lives. They want God's life in their life, to be different from the lives of those that don't know God. And that made their confession serious. And it made it real for them. Now, this is strange about about Nehemiah. And, And I see a lesson here for the Christian life that I hope you'll learn. Do you know what happened 10 years before this? The same exact thing. Hold your finger out and just go back to Ezra 9. They did this same exact thing 10 years earlier. In Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah wasn't there. This is just Ezra's. 
ministry to the remnant. Ezra chapter 9, look at your verse, your Bible, verse number 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not, what's the word? Separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. Even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Ammonites. And they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the peoples of those lands. You know what Ezra does in verse number three? When I heard this thing, I rent my garment, my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. What a thing. Guys, I've been beside myself before, but I've never been tempted to pull my hair out. I'm like Nehemiah, I've been tempted to pull somebody else's hair out. We'll get to that in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Ezra is so overwhelmed with the fact that the lives of the people of God are no different than the lives of the people that don't know God. That he's pulling his hair out and he's pulling the hair out of his beard. And you know what they do in chapter 9 and chapter 10? I'm not going to read it all. But in chapter 9 and chapter 10, they confess that sin and they they start separating themselves from the strangers. Here's my question. If they did that 10 years earlier, why do they have to do it again in Nehemiah 9? Because that's what happens in our lives. We separate from things and then they creep back into our lives. And we've got to purge them again. We've got to get rid of them again. Uh, Don't be discouraged. God's not discouraged about it. He's long-suffering to us. Word, amen. He continues to put up with us and forgive us. But you know the sad thing? In Nehemiah chapter 9, they have revival. They really do. But you know what happens in chapter 13? they got to do this all over again for the third time. And every time... They start getting close with the people of the world. It causes more heartache and heartbreak in their lives. But they're constantly, listen to me, they're constantly having to separate themselves again. Because it's not one trip to the altar or one decision in your life. I tell you what, what you decide to do in your 20s, you'll have to decide to do it again in your 30s. What you've decided to do in your 30s, you'll have to decide to do it again in your 40s. Listen to me now. Well, we got some young families in here and you're doing right and you want to do right. You'll have to decide next, next, the next 10 years to do that again. It's not just going to be a one-time decision because there's something about this world and the strangers of this world that just creep into our lives. And we've got to separate from them not once, not twice, but three times. We've got to do it continually. And some people get tired of that because they don't want to be different. They want to blend into the world. I don't want to be strange to God. I want to be strange to the people that don't know God. So they separated themselves. And then what I want to get to tonight, verse number 2. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood 
and confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. It seems like they didn't get tired from all that Bible reading they got in the previous chapter. I mean, they said, let's do it again. You mean you want to stand out there for hours and hours? Let's do it again. That helped me before. I need another dose of that. And so the Bible said one-fourth part of the day they read in the book of the law of the Lord. Watch it. And another fourth part, they what? They confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now you know what a fourth part of a day is, right? Now we're not talking about when we talk, day and night, the evening and the morning. So the day, the, a fourth part of the day, not a fourth part of the day and night. You understand? So you take that, that 12 hour period of the day, of the daytime, and a fourth part of the day, that's three hours. So from six o'clock in the morning to nine o'clock in the morning, they read the Bible. You would think that would, I don't think that was the hard part. From 9 o'clock in the morning until 12 o'clock noon, they confess and worship God for another three hours. Now, put that in perspective. We have a camp schedule at camp because we're spiritual. And on the top of that schedule, we have... God and I time, right? We want to start the day with God. We want to start reading our Bible and talking to God because we want to have good family camp. We want God to work in our hearts. You know how long that time is? 30 minutes. You say, why is it 30 minutes? Some can't get that. I mean, to go from five minutes a day or zero minutes a day to 30 minutes a day, that's, that's a pretty good jump. Well, let me just ask you, how, many, how much time do you spend in the morning with God? It's so quiet you can hear a cricket hop. We're going we're to get spiritual family camp. Where are we going? 30 minutes in the Bible. They did three hours. And they don't even have the Holy Ghost. Three hours. But that's not the hard part. They said, all right, we're through with our three-hour Bible. We're through with our three-hour God and I time. Now what do we do? Well, we're going to confess our sins for three hours. Guys, you know what we do? If we're lucky, we'll have about an hour, maybe, if the preacher's long-winded, maybe an hour and a half, we'll, we'll sing and worship God and hear the Bible. And you know how long our confession time is? 
Two minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. And that's just a small fraction of the people in the church. How about confessing sins for three hours? You know, if you had to confess sin for an hour, you'd lose your mind. Because you know what you'd do? What we would do? After several minutes, you'd run out of things to confess. Can you imagine confessing your sins for just one hour? That's all you do. That's all you do. For one hour, you confess your sins. I don't even know we can pray and put praise and prayer requests and confession and the whole lot in an hour. But just confession for an hour? That's why I'm calling this tonight the lost art of confession. How were they able to confess that long? They know something about confession we don't know. This is what we do. We feel bad about something, and so we go to God, maybe privately at home or somewhere, we, wherever we are, around the altar, and we confess that thing that we're bothered about. But you see, there are a whole lot of other things that we need to confess than just the things that we realize we're guilty of. David says this. David said, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me. And see if there be some wicked way in me. That means David saying this. I can't see all the wicked ways in me. So you know what you have to do? You have to go to God and say, God, would you show them to me? We're supposed to do that during the Lord's table, right? During the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to examine ourselves. Is that what the Bible says? We look into our hearts, we look into our lives, and, and we, we get quiet just for a moment. And, and sometimes that stillness and that quietness is a little uncomfortable. So when's it going to end? We're going to go to the next thing. When it ought to be a serious time of searching our heart and letting God search our heart and us opening our heart and say, God, would you talk to me please and show me something in my life that is not right, some iniquity, some sin that I don't even know is there. I'm telling you that confession takes time. And we don't have time for it. We only have time for the thing that is bothering us. They confess for three hours. You know what I think they're doing? I think they're confessing sins of commission. But they're also confessing sins of omission. God, I'm sorry I, I spoke hastily and I'm sorry that I said that bad word, and I'm sorry that I had this thought, and I'm sorry that I did this, God, and I confess this is sin. And then, God, I want to confess to you that, that I've not been a witness for you. It's been so long since I've told somebody about the gospel or give them a gospel track, and, and I'm sorry for that, Lord. And God, I hadn't read my Bible like I ought to read my Bible. And I sure don't pray like I ought to pray. And I, I want to confess that sin to you, Lord. I want to confess my sin, Lord, of, of not serving others and having compassion for other people. There's so many sins we can confess. I don't even get to the sins of the heart. God, I confess my sin of pride. I confess my sin of bitterness. I confess my sin of anger. 
But after we've done all that, you know how, how they could confess sins that long? Look at your verse again. It says in verse number 2 there that they confessed. In, in Nehemiah chapter 9, the Bible says in verse 2, they stood and confessed their sins and, and, the what? Iniquities of their fathers. You know, you should preach it. I've confessed all I know to confess. You know what? Start confessing somebody else's. Boy, that's a lost art. Do you know what Daniel did in the Bible? He confessed other people's sins that he wasn't even guilty of. You know what Ezra did in Ezra chapter 9, chapter 10? He was confessing sins that he had not committed, that, that, that people that he loved had committed. What if we spent some time confessing the sins of the people we love because we know they sure aren't going to confess them. Lord, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry. That, that was a... I want to confess the sins of my, of my parents and I want to confess the sins of my children, confess the sins of my friends. And Lord, we got a good church, but you know, we got some people in our church that have sin problems and I just want to tell you, I'm sorry about all that. And God, I live in this country, and I don't agree what's going on with it, but Lord, I'm so sorry that we've, we've sinned against you, and we kill babies, and we, we stand against your laws, and we let homosexual people be married, and we have all this hatred towards you, God. And, and I'm just, how about confessing people's sins and not even your sins? I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot more time in confession. And then I would say this, how can you fill up such a long time with confession? Well, you can, you can confess your sins of omission and your sins of commission and then ask God to show you sins and, and then wait and, and have some contemplation and searching of heart and just wait on God to show you those sins and listen. I think half of us are crazy because we can't, we can't sit still long enough for God to talk to us. Because the silence drives us nuts. And when we have confession, we get real quiet before God. And we say, all right, Lord, I'm open. I'm listening. What's wrong in my heart? Would you show me? And we sit there and wait. It takes time. But then after you've done all that, you know what else you can do? You can confess sins that you haven't done, but you may be guilty of. You know, I've had times in my life I thought God was away from me and there was something wrong with my life and I couldn't even figure out what it was. And I got before God and I said, God, would you show me? And I didn't get anything. You know what I started doing? I just started confessing everything. Even if I didn't know it was true in my heart. I think that would be better than ignoring it. Just make up something. Some people need to make up confession. Amen. It'd be better for you to make up a confessional than not to have any. Is that a Bible doctrine? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. It is a Bible. It's a New Testament doctrine. The lost art of confession. How much time have you spent confessing? Now mind you, if that's all you do, you're just a Catholic. We don't want you to be that. 
We want you to spend the same amount of time. We want you to be praising God and thanking God and worshiping God and blessing His name and have the joy of the Lord in your heart. But I'm just wondering, how much do we really confess? How much sin do you think is in this building tonight? And we got a good church. But how much sin do you think is in this building tonight? Brother Preacher, I know so and so there got some sin. Well, come down here and confess there's. You say, well, that, that won't take away their sin. Well, it might help you. It might help God look upon us in a little bit more seriousness because we're not only interested in what we've done wrong, we, we want everybody else to get right with God too. A, th- a fourth part of the day. Oh, my, 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 help us, Lord. Forgive us of not being honest about where we are with God. Forgive us of the one hour preaching and singing and worship and the five, seven minutes confessing and mostly not participation in that. Forgive us of not having spent a single hour alone with you, God, for any reason at all. And we wonder why. Why aren't things better? If we want revival, somebody needs to look at that and put it, in our, put it in their lives. We need to have humility. We need to have separation. And we need to have confession. And aren't you glad in the New Testament, you don't have to confess to me. Guys, I'm not even telling you to confess to other people. I'm asking you to tell it to God. Now, if you wrong somebody, you ought, to, you ought to confess it to them. Even if you don't think you did anything wrong. <laughs> Have you ever said you're sorry for something you don't think you were wrong? Well, I'm not going to do that. Come on, don't you think you could have missed it? <laughs> I will never apologize for something I don't know that I've done wrong. Well, you're going to miss a lot of apologies you needed to make. I'm not trying to get you to shout, but I sure want to get clean. And the good thing about God, you will not tell God anything too awful. He says, come.